the Eastern Front and Ukrainian Culture, a conversation with Larissa Zelichniak. This is episode 13 of Beyond Barbarossa. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people, also known as Ottawa. This episode is a special one. We're not departing from the history of the Eastern Front, far from it. Instead, this episode delves into the continuing impact of the Second World War in the East on the culture of today, specifically the wars in Ukraine in 1941 to 1945, and today in 2022. While the Eastern Front is often called the Russian Front when people talk about the Second World War, half of it was fought on the territory of Ukraine. That titanic struggle left a lasting impact on the whole world, on our political consciousness, on our cultures, and in particular, on the Ukrainian culture, both in Ukraine and in the Ukrainian diaspora around the world. After the Second World War, a third wave, so-called, of Ukrainian immigration came to the West, especially the United States and Canada. So to explore that impact, that cultural impact, that political consciousness impact, I'm joined today by Larissa Zarechniak of the Wandering the Edge podcast and website that focuses on Ukrainian culture and history. Uh, How are you doing, Larissa? I'm good. A little um, saddened by what happened in Kyiv this morning, Uh, but otherwise good. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, what happened in Ukraine this morning, as we're talking, this is Thanksgiving Day 2022 in, um, in Canada. And uh, this morning, yeah, the first thing on the news was about uh, multiple rocket attacks in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities from Russia, in apparent retaliation for the uh, bombing of the Kerch Bridge, um, which, from what I have heard, was not carried out by Ukrainian agents at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard I heard the same thing that it was like some inter Kremlin, whatever. I it's I just in all honesty, I think the entirety of this entire war is just a I don't under I've never understood it. I I don't get it. Like you have so many problems internally. Why do you want ter- more territory to add to your internal problems? Like it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me as I guess, like a, a normal human being, mm-hmm. you know, but I guess you can't make sense of a madman. So. No, indeed. And um, as we've seen many times through history. Um, yeah. So Ukraine is very much, um, very much in the public mind right now. Here we are in 2022, obviously because of the war in Ukraine, uh, the invasion by uh, Russia um, and it does, um, I see a number of parallels with an earlier invasion in 1941, which is what the Beyond Barbarossa podcast is all about, of course. Uh, so, but uh, first, I think what I would like uh, to ask you, Larissa, from your point of view, from uh, you know your podcast, uh, 
what um i guess it's kind of an obvious question but tell me about the the uh impact or the engagement of the wider ukrainian diaspora in north america or the west generally and um how much attention is being paid to this war and is there a range of opinion on it in this community um so i think initially it i have to start off by saying that if it wasn't for the ukrainian diaspora in the west i don't think anyone would be paying attention to what's happening um mm. i think because of the centuries of of immigration into the west by very um nationally conscious ukrainians who then take the up their sort of that fight to their uh, own government i think that's what you get a lot of the attention going towards ukraine especially in canada because we are one of the strongest lobby like ethnic lobby groups in canada um mm-hmm. when all this st- obviously when this started in february everyone was sort of shocked and appalled and and, and but there's this obviously huge level of support from everyone across the board. Um, Unfortunately, what we have seen, because my husband has his own little fundraising um, campaign as an ex-soldier and an ex of the Ukrainian armed forces living here in Canada. So he has, he sends money um, to Ukraine, but even that we see it's, it's gone from, you know, a couple of thousand like every week or whatever to, you know, only a couple of hundred that we've gotten for the last couple of months so it's really difficult now to get financial support because obviously it's the war. Everyone's sort of tired of it. The news cycles are tired of it. Um, however, in the Ukrainian community itself, there's always there has always been a united front. Even as much as we like to bicker amongst ourselves, there's always a united front when it comes to um, supporting Ukraine and Ukraine's progression to Europe, Europe basically, um, away from that old Soviet mentality and towards more of a democratic um, identity. So as of right now, I think across the board, a lot of Ukrainians are focused on that. Um, And a lot of people that were sort of still on that fence of, well, Russia is our neighbor and we've had historical relations and we shouldn't really make them mad, um, which you saw happen a lot post-2014 when the the battles were contained in the Donbass and Krim was taken away illegally, you still had those Ukrainians that in the diaspora who were still sort of like undecided, all of a sudden those voices cannot really be heard anymore because they sort of see with their own eyes what Russia actually does. Um, Not only within their territory, but in territory that they think is theirs. Um, I haven't really come across a lot of Ukrainians who don't support what Ukraine's going through. Um, for at least from my perspective, I know they're probably mm-hmm. out there, obviously. Um, I just haven't encountered any of them. Right, right. So yeah, the so still so far within this community, there is still uh, some unity of um of thought. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Like we do everything that we can to support Ukraine. Um, and and especially now, um, oh. because we have to. I mean, um, I, I think I'm I'm a little bit different in the sense that I've lived there. I have a lot of more connections there. Um, 
a lot of people who have lived in Canada for, you know, have bo been born like in Canada and don't really have a lot of those ties back to Ukraine are still still consider themselves Ukrainian, which I think is one of the the weirdly great things about Canada itself is that you can come here as an immigrant and your grandkids can still consider themselves, you know, Ukrainian Canadian. Um, yeah. You have that luxury yeah. of of the two identities. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not Ukrainian, but um, I think I've I've earned a honorary Ukrainian status. Of course. Um, <laughs> because for a number of first I'm, I was born in Winnipeg so there's that vibe Ukrainian uh, yes mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I used to joke it's Ukraine's second largest city yeah um, but uh, uh, I had you know I always had a lot of Ukrainian friends um, it just sort of works out that way when you're from Winnipeg and um, I married a Ukrainian lady so um, and um, and her, her mother was born in Ukraine and her father's was Ukrainian so mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, I have some, uh, I have some insight, I think. And yeah, that's true that the, the ident, the cultural, cultural identity persists um, quite strongly through the generations, you know, two, three generations down, there's, they're still Ukrainian, mm -hmm. you know, identifying as Ukrainian, they're going to Ukrainian dance classes and, yeah. um, and, and, and all that. Now, this is something that's my fault. I should have asked this first. Tell me about the Wandering the Edge podcast. Uh, tell the listeners what it's all about and a little bit about who you are. Um, so I am a historian by trade. Uh, I work now in a dental office because that's, yeah. Um, but uh, so I did my master's uh, in history in England on Ukrainian history. I did start my PhD. I didn't oh. complete it. Um, both in University in Exeter and at the Kiev um, Tarashevchenko University, which this morning that was the area that um, was bombed. So ah. it it's very weird for me waking up this morning, seeing these images of a park that I would literally walk into and out of daily, almost. Right. So it's it's yeah. it's a bit surreal, I think. Still, um, and then obviously I came. I got married in Ukraine um, to my husband, who I met um, while he was on the front lines in 2015. Um, just randomly, I was looking for um, interviews with soldiers who joined the front lines just to see if there are correlations between um, civilians actively joining a, a war um, in these days and is there a correlation with the reasons why civilians joined during the second world war then oh. i ended up not doing the article but i ended up got gaining a husband instead so you know i guess all, all around win um we moved to canada and covid happened and i got yeah. very very bored at home and so one day i was like i want to hear a podcast about um Kinyahenia Olha, who was like our queen queen olga from medieval mm -hmm. times because that woman inspires me sometimes yeah. and i searched uh spotify and i found this really dumb podcast about her like this episode but it was like they got drunk and then they like sort of it was a lot of like haha and then she did this and i'm like is this what ukrainian history is to people like is it just a joke that you can just sort of um like get drunk and then 
are we like the pit? Like that's, this is the feeling that I always had also at conferences and stuff where if Ukrainian history, especially during the second world war was brought up, we were very much categorized as someone as a country and a people that were either, you know, Nazi collaborators or, Mm -hmm. or victims. And you're like, "Eh." but there's a lot more, there's a lot more nuance when it comes to Ukrainian history and so I got inspired by that lack of, I guess, historical, um, historical seriousness when it comes to Ukrainian history on a yeah. podcast level. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast. How hard can it be? How and so hard here can we it are. be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here we are. I felt, I felt kind of uh, very similar to uh, what I found with. Uh, with Beyond Barbarossa, I thought, you know, is there a podcast about specifically the Eastern Front in World War II? No, there's mm-hmm. not. No, there is and, not. And then, and then researching uh, the Eastern Front trilogy again, it's like, okay, how much depth is there on on what really happened? And there's not. Uh, and it's just there's like zero sort of cultural, um, you know, popular opinion or thought or, or, or knowledge of the area. Either. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and uh, there's a uh, lot of myths. Oh, a hundred percent. There's like, and, and that's the thing that I found going into conferences in the Western world, like England, America, and Canada. And you would present this topic on the Ukrainian insurgent army during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And like the questions that I would get were, well, what does Russia think about it? And I'm like, who cares? Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, this isn't Russian history. This is our history. Like, who cares what Mm -hmm. Russia thinks? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's always been that long domination through history, you know, culturally and uh, in in the literature uh, and, of course, in the military um, and political side. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, yeah, and so when you bring up the Second World War, you mentioned it. This is the other sort of the one of the major things that I found is, you know, as I'm progressing with my podcast, I'm rechecking and going deeper into the research that i've done before and i do notice i've noticed some pers- uh, some parallels between 1941 and 2022 um what, what about you or uh tell me do you see those parallels and and what strikes you about about them oh boy um well i mean the parallels definitely are the way that putin is running the show reminds me starkly of how Stalin ran the show in the beginning um mm-hmm. and especially how Stalin had this sort of um I call cult I guess you could say around himself where he didn't want to hear any of the bad news right so right. I think there's this um idea that the KGB knew that there was attack gonna that was gonna happen in 1941 and I don't know if I can't, I can't really remember if they were too afraid to let him know or they just didn't want to let him know because of how he, he would react well and actually there are a lot of people who did tell him and um and there's a lot of uh, well, he, he basically rejected the, yeah. the warning yeah. and um you know for a number of reasons part of it was you know he's trying not to uh do anything that would provoke uh, germany yeah but yeah he he got a long letter from one spy in tokyo who got um, a trans, you know, coded transmissions over three days from another spy in in um, Switzerland, mm-hmm. and they both said it's coming on June twenty second. Yeah, <laughs> and so then they just, were, and that's the thing. You're just like, 
if this is, I, I mean, no offense, like he can keep on doing what he's doing because clearly it's not exactly winning the war for him. Um, mm. So let him lead by all means, lead until your grave, like that's fine. Um, but it's just like those similarities of, of complete unpreparedness of the Russian army and then the complete unpreparedness of the Red Army. Mm-hmm. It, yes. it, it's it's mind boggling because I mean they glory it's a, a to the, modern Russian today is very much a glorification of the Soviet Red Army victories mm-hmm. and it's just I think that is the problem too it's like they glorify all of these victories that weren't actually victories from their point of view right like it's it I mean there were victories because they won the war but they won the war because of also their allies they won the war because they forced all of these millions of people to go into the army and used millions more as just cannon fodder and are basically are trying to do the same thing now in ukraine whereas this isn't 1945 right this yeah. isn't you know there's there's a gulf in in technology there's a gulf in in weapons and i mean there's a big change in how ukrainians are strategically using their um their weaponry and their their advances to to win this war whereas russia i think has this weird mentality of well if i put too many people on the on the ground sooner or later we're going to get somewhere yeah yeah it's still um keep doing the same thing if it doesn't work do it more yeah Um, whereas and that's the thing that i find very weird is that it, it for a country that glorifies its second world war they haven't really learned from the from the mistakes of the second world war because they had right. massive amounts of mistakes. And by ignoring a large part of their history, especially that lend-lease policy by the Americans and the Western mm-hmm. allies, mm-hmm. you know, like, I get it. You have, you have the manpower to win that, that war, and you did it. But if it wasn't for the fact that the Americans were literally shipping you food, you yes. wouldn't have gotten from point A to point B very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, and my, my father-in-law always told me he, that the, all of his boys, as he called them, really loved the American food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, they all loved the canned ham, he said. The spam, so. yes. The spam was a big <laughs> one, yes. Yeah. Um, now, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned before. That article you were working on a few years back uh, when you met your husband, did you, are there any sort of... Um, maybe not conclusions yet, but any trends that you, you noticed when you were talking to soldiers? Um, so the ones that, that joined who had no military experience beforehand, um, those are the group that I wanted. When mm-hmm. I asked them, like, why did you go? You know, why did you take up arms, willingly go to a front line? And all of them basically replied, because it was my country. Like, it's not. And this is the, the other problem when it comes to Ukrainian history is when we talk about nationalism or patriotism, when it comes to Ukrainians, it's always deemed as, as such a bad and evil thing, you know, like Ukrainian nationalism is bad. But I'm like, but how then do you determine what these men and women did in 2014 and 15 who willingly left their peaceful existence, their peaceful jobs, took up arms and went into the front lines and basically rebuilt the Ukrainian armed forces from scratch because they had absolutely nothing before and saved their country. You know, like there is a certain level of patriotism and nationalism when it comes to someone's mindset of my homeland is being attacked. I have to go and fight. Um, And that is across the board that 
that was the answer that I heard from from almost everyone. There wasn't a single mm-hmm. person that said, "Well, I went because I got money." Like that wasn't part of the objective. And because they honestly back then the pay was not that great anyway, so it's not it monetary um, compensations weren't exactly the motivating factor. The motivating factor was I want to protect my country, my homeland, right. my my soil. Like this is where. I am born. This is where I'm going to die. Like, this is, this is mine. Um, mm. And I think a lot of that also sort of entails back into the second world war. Those people that joined, I, I specifically looked at the Ukrainian insurgent army. Um, mm-hmm. and when I did my oral history projects, like my oral history interviews with them, when I asked them, like, why did you join the, the UPA? And a lot of them were like, where else was I going to go? I'm not going to go join Germans. I'm not going to join the Soviets. Because that's right. that's not my people, you know. I'm going to join my people. I'm going to portray the people that are protecting my village, my settlement, my house, rather right. than you know bombing it. So, and and that's over. That's that's the main conclusion of of the two sort of eras of Ukrainian history. Was there's a as a great motivator, patriotism and nationalism are a great motivator. Um, mm-hmm. especially if your con- if your land, if your country, if your home is being attacked. Right, right. Um, yeah, I did find that too. I didn't talk to as many different people. I have one primary source for the Eastern Front trilogy. But um, one thing that did strike me though, uh, back then at that time was just that there were many different factions uh, within the Ukrainian community in Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's 80 years on, but uh, the, the research I did find, the information I did find, showed there was a, quite a range, and there were very, very different groups. I mean, there was UPA, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian insurgent army. There was a group that my father-in-law belonged to, the Ukrainian People's Revolutionary Army. Not really opposed, but not a mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, personality divisions of the leadership. Uh, there were Ukrainian communists, there were Ukrainian Nazis, there were, um, uh, and then there was, of course, the, in that area of Ukraine, there was the, the, the Polish um, interest, yep. shall we say. Yep. Um, so there's quite a range of, of loyalties there. Do you think that um, that is persisting, or do you think, you know, 80 years on today, there's a, uh, maybe a different constellation of interests well definitely the communists are out because mm. yeah i think they've proven are ineffective really? as uh, as as anyone else um and i think you saw the last election i think they didn't even barely get one percent out of the entire country so um right. as for historically yes there is a mishmash of loyalties and like all good ukrainian history obviously they can't be united under one one force because that would just be too easy for us right um not the ukrainian no it's it's like we literally need like three committees to do one thing you know like it's it's sometimes it gets absolutely ridiculous um today i think is a completely different situation there are probably still those that have that mentality and i know that that there are still those that have that mentality of well you know they're the russian our brothers or the russians or you know, we shouldn't have like fought them. And you're like, you're not really fighting them if they're literally coming into your country and trying to kill you. So, yeah. you know, like you're not going to have a great relationship on that front. Mm-hmm. 
Um, however, I think the younger generation and especially the 40s and younger mm-hmm. are all pretty much on the same page when it comes to where their loyalties lie and which group um, that our loyalties yeah. lie. No, the communists, I, I highly doubt they're going to come back as a strong force in Ukraine. Um, mm. I mean, socialists as in like what we would consider our NDP here in Canada. So it's like the political socialists rather than the um, or theoretical socialists rather than the political socialists. I think they may like get a reappearance sometime, but I think everyone is pretty much um, united under Zelensky now post February mm-hmm. 2022. I don't mm-hmm. think that there's any, a lot of like fraction factions of, of people that are, saying that like maybe we'll join russia like i don't think that's happening yeah. in ukraine just especially with the constant bombardment on civilians you know like right. how how are would what argument can you make to join russia these days uh, the the beatings will continue until morale improves yeah mm-hmm. you know whereas i think also ukrainians have had a, a taste of europe too now Mm-hmm. Um, especially those Ukrainians that have fled Ukraine in February 2022 that have never been outside of Ukraine and especially those Ukrainians that have lived in Europe um, for mm-hmm. various reasons for a very long time and their influence is starting to also you can sort of see it in the way that Kiev is run right it's a very European city or I mean it was before the bombings all started but that european mentality the european food culture the cafe culture like that's you know it's it's starting to influence it and sort of being it's it's slowly being pulled back to the orbit where it's supposed to be rather than the orbit that it was forced to be under yeah now um what about the relationship with poland either culturally or or politically um i mean it's pretty obvious it's very different now but uh within the you know between people there was uh, at least if not rivalry even animosity mm-hmm. um, that did persist among the older generation uh, what's that like with the ukrainians of today so of today it's completely changed and i think it changed post 2013 14 also um mm-hmm. where you saw poland becoming a lot more influential in becoming Ukraine's voice in the European community because they all mm-hmm. sort of realize who the main enemy is and all has always been in all honesty historically mm-hmm. it, with Poland and Ukraine yes we have yeah. had horrible history um, both sides are to sort of blame I hate that using that both both sides because now it's become such a stupid like thing after Trump has used it but you know, both the Ukrainians mm. and the Poles sort of... You hate having to quote, quote Trump, right? I know. <laughs> and I'm like, I hate this because, like, it makes sense. But it just the way, like, even me saying it, I'm like, ugh, I don't like these words. But there's no other words to say. So, unfortunately, like, you blame both of them. Like, you blame for both yeah. of them for being just stubborn, pig-headed, and, and set in their ways. But I think uh, now everything has sort of changed. And moving forward i think there's going to be a lot more um peaceful coexistence obviously but right. i think when i was talking to um a Can- uh, a polish canadian here in hamilton we were we were somewhere fundraising and we were talking and and, and she said like 
all of the stuff that happened in, in our mutual, you know, hatred and distrust and, and warfare amongst each other is that it's just that it's history. And I go, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the Poles and the Ukrainians have this great opportunity to sort of sit down and debate as normal human beings um, with each other on at a table. Whereas for yeah. Russia, you can't really do that. They're deciding the world, well, we want you, we're just going to bomb you. And you're like, huh? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's, that, that's, you know, it's a, a, well, very hopeful, I guess, is there. Yeah. So, okay. Um, and here's the, my last question for you is, what about the current uh, war in Ukraine? What does it show the world about Ukrainian culture or the Ukrainian cultural character? I think it shows that you may bomb us, you may starve us, you may try to completely eliminate us as a people. Mm-hmm. We're still gonna, we're still gonna survive. Mm-hmm. We might be dwindled, like we might have less people, but we're still gonna be there. We're still gonna, we're still gonna know what our history is. We're gonna know what our culture. I'm like these are the. This is the thing that I don't understand. Like we are, we suck when we are part of an empire. We are horrible citizens. Even we're horrible citizens, even in Ukraine. We, they bitch about everything. So why would you want that on? Like, wh- why? Like, why would you want us to be citizens of your country? We will literally revolt once in a generation. That's what happened in history it is happening now. Like we literally cannot sit still and be peaceful unless you actually leave us alone, right? Mm. so like it 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 just boggles the mind but that's the one thing that i want to say is that like we've we've been through man-made famines we've been through Mm -hmm. world wars i mean horror like the holocaust all of these things have happened on our territory and in our history and we've still managed to survive we're still here we're still stubborn we're still we're not going to go anywhere. And that's the one thing about Ukrainian culture is that it's going to survive. And I mean, okay. we're, we're the type of people that will remember how to make a pisanka, which is something our pagan ancestors did 3000 years ago. And we still yeah. do on a yearly basis. Like, I don't, yeah. that's the, that, that's what's mind boggling about all this. Like, how are you going to try to erase this history? How? Like, you know? If Stalin didn't do it, you're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Any final thoughts then on, um, you know, on the Ukrainian history or uh, the current situation or anything else? Well, Um, let's put it this way. What should we in the West keep in mind when we think of Ukraine? It has... Ama- it's amazing. I-, I-, I love traveling Ukraine. Like it is apps. It's funny in ways. It's dumb in other ways. It's it's frustrating in some other ways. But at the same time, like I literally yearn to go back every year. You know, like yeah. we'll we'll plan a vacation, and I'm like, we, we are not going to go to Ukraine this year. And then you're like, damn it, but I miss that like restaurant in Kiev that we always go to, or like let's drive through like the Carpathians and see something. Like it's. It's a land filled with so many surprising, pleasant experiences that literally when the war ends, like I want everyone to go and experience. It's 
it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. The people, yes, might look a little serious, but once you get to know them, they are absolutely some of the best people in the world. And they will literally feed you until you are like overstuffed and like have to be rolled home just so you cannot go home and say, well, I'm hungry after that. Like they will, they will do whatever. So they're they just can. like the Ukrainians. They're just like the Ukrainians here in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so like it, there's a warmth to that country. And I think that warmth has finally managed to like come out. Cause when I lived there in 2006, it really was sort of that post Soviet depressing era of like, there's like inklings you know, of, of that Ukrainian culture coming out. Whereas like, I think post dignity revolution, it just sort of exploded. And mm -hmm. the people that went to Ukraine back in like the 1990s, I, I constantly tell them like, go back now, like you're not going to recognize it. It's completely different. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like even the hipster culture is, is different there. Like you have the Kiev hipsters and you have the Odessa hipsters who are completely different. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, I, I mean, I love it. And I, and that's sort of what I, I did the podcast too, to include a lot of more of the tourism stuff is just because people don't know a lot about Ukraine or what they yeah. do know is very much centered around the Russian world. And yeah. you know, go experience it, you know, like have fun there. Like you'll get, you'll get some of the most life-changing experiences of your life. Like I I'm guaranteeing. So okay. that's that's well, what I want people to remember is that Ukrainians are are awesome when we get together. Let guess God, we bicker. Oh my God. Sometimes to the point where you're just like, what am I doing? <laughs> but at the same time, they're I love them because they're my people. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Larissa. No problems. This has been a great uh, and illuminating conversation. And it's been wonderful to hear about the cultural memory of Ukrainians in Ukraine, in Canada, and around the world. So just to point you listeners in the right direction, Larissa Zarechniak is host and producer of the Wandering the Edge podcast and website. She has a master's degree in history from the University of Nottingham in the UK and a deep interest in Ukrainian history. Her show covers topics that range from the history of Ukrainian dance around the world to key Ukrainian thinkers and artists to culture, the women of the Ukrainian siege riflemen, and it provides uh, some clarity about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and much, much more. Do yourselves a favor and give Wandering the Edge a listen. Find it at wanderingtheedge.net and on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Breaker Audio, Radio Public, Spotify, and most other podcasting platforms. And thank you all for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the whole progress of the war, please see my website, beyondbarbarossa.ca, or my personal writer's website, writtenword.ca. Thanks also to all of you who've supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find that I or my, my guests or anyone else has made any uh, errors or misapprehensions or just misunderstandings, or if you have a comment or a question, please drop us a line, let us know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca 
or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. Thank you.